So I, I don't know if this has ever happened, but I can imagine uh, a special ops team being given a, a detailed map of a town in the surrounding countryside in enemy territory, of course, and they've never been to this place before, or even a place uh, remotely like it. It really is all new terrain to them. And they're told to commit that map to memory in all of its particulars. And the map has the names of all the streets and uh, important landmarks are shown. And there are certain buildings that, uh, that might be important or become important and they're noted. Maybe there are buildings that they need to avoid or maybe it's a place that they could set up a strong defense and an appropriate uh, or a good place for an evacuation and the appropriate notations are made. Elevations or other topographical uh, information is deemed to be significant and therefore it's included in the map along with some demographic information such as uh, population density and even cultural attitudes. And the team is given the map and they're told to memorize it but there's no other details about any possible mission which are provided to them. All they're told at that point is to commit that map to memory. Maybe the colonel or the commander adds some kind of lame advice like this may save your life. But they've got the map and they've got their assignment such as it is and then they're dismissed. Now you could imagine that they might assume some things without being told. They might realize that wherever they might be sent... Uh, that it would be a mission that would be so fast-paced that there wouldn't be any time for consulting maps. They just have to know where they need to go. And they might also think that the mission is open-ended enough and the intelligence is not quite uh, good enough, and, and so there's going to be a lot of decisions that have to be made on the ground and on the fly. And they would know that uh, whatever it might be, it must be important to someone somewhere. They might also wonder if uh, command is concerned about communications breakdown. And they certainly would know that they did not know enough. Now, you can imagine all of those things happening, all those thoughts going through their heads. What you can't imagine with someone in that situation is that they'd walk away and they would toss the map aside complaining that it's just too much work. I mean, there might be grumbling enough, I wouldn't know, but each man would take that map to heart. They would learn it. They would know it before anyone told them why, before they were told what the mission was. And, and maybe they wouldn't know any of those details until they were already on the chopper en route, but they would know that map. Well, it's in that spirit that we're going to look at today's text. We're going to approach it as though it is mission critical information, something that we truly need to know. Only here we're not given a map. Rather, we are given a picture. And, and it really isn't too much to say that a great deal hangs on what we see here in this picture. Whether we understand it right now or not, the time will come where we will be glad for the truth that it presents to us. 
The picture that we're going to be shown is a glimpse into heaven, and it's found in the book of the Revelation, the fourth chapter. So I want to invite you to join me once again in the last book of the Bible, this time in chapter 4. And uh, good, it's, uh, it's going to be up on the screen on either side of me. So this chapter begins with a really a rather abrupt change. Uh, we were in pretty familiar territory for the last couple of months. Uh, we've been looking at the seven letters to the seven churches, and, and then there are things there in those letters that kind of maybe edge us away from our comfort zone a little bit. For the most part, we can read them and understand them with just a very little bit of effort on our part. Now, it's true that the book did uh, begin with this otherworldly vision of the redeemed Christ, but the letters themselves, they, they fit really easily into our understanding. But chapter 4 changes all of that. We're thrown back into the middle of a vision, and we read in verse 1 in the beginning of verse 2, uh, After this I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven, and the voice I had heard first speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit. Now John uses that term, in the Spirit, uh, four times in this writing, and it always indicates a change in experience or spiritual location. And here there's a door that's open into heaven, and John's told to go up there, and that he'll be shown what will happen later. And it'll be helpful for us just to take a moment uh, to, um, to um, make some observations uh, about the time frame of the, some of the things uh, within this letter. So from John's perspective, chapter 1 was his now. <laughs> he was telling us about the vision and, and of the resurrected Christ as he was experiencing it. And then again from John's perspective, chapters 2 and 3 are his near future, right? I mean, they addressed churches that were contemporary with him. The letters to those churches needed to be delivered, and some things would take time to unfold. So they, they really represent the near future for uh, John. And, and I just want to remind you uh, that those churches are also so representative of something else. They're representative of all churches down through the ages. And finally, from John's perspective, chapter 6 through the end of the book represent what we just would call the future. Distances and dates are unknown. It refers to the end time events. And however, again, just like those letters uh, to the churches, the events represent this contest between good and evil and the involvement of God's people down through the centuries. Now, chapters 4 and 5, which we will look at next week, inhabit a kind of a unique time zone. And we're going to look at that a little bit more closely a little later. So John uh, is in the Spirit, and he's in heaven, and in this vision, and, and he begins to describe for us the things that he sees there. And we can say that in one sense that he, he paints a picture for us, and, and it's a picture that we really want to get a hold of. It, it's important information to us as the people of God. And so we're going to pick up our reading in the middle of verse 2 where it says, There before me was a throne in heaven, was someone sitting on it. 
And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and ruby and the rainbow that shone like an emerald encircled his throne. Now I want you to notice what John doesn't do there. He doesn't tell us who is sitting on the throne. He simply says someone was sitting there, and then he describes him. And when he does, he simply refers to him as the one who sits on the throne. Now, our mind makes the jump, doesn't it? I mean, we know it's God. We infer it because it's the first thing that John saw, and it's a throne, and it's in heaven, but John doesn't actually say it. Instead, what he does is he kind of slowly unfolds this picture before us. He he paints it a step at a time so that it slowly shows us all that we need to know. And it slowly reveals this picture of God to us. And, and did you notice John's description of the one who sat on the throne? I mean, his appearance was of jasper and rubies. You know, we don't even know for sure what those stones are that John named there. We just make kind of a guess. Jasper and ruby is, a, is only a guess, so some really interpreted as diamonds and rubies and the diamonds and rubies are to me anyway this really beautiful combination I can just picture diamonds and rubies together but you know that's all it says to us it it says something about beauty and maybe light and clarity that's uh, not much other detail about the one that sat there a little bit more is told to us about the setting the throne was surrounded by this emerald rainbow, which increases that otherworldliness of the vision and the beauty and the light. But there's not much detail. And I suppose that that's the way it should be. I mean, there simply is no description that is worthy of God. And what John saw there was a vision where God was represented to him as having an appearance like diamonds and rubies, indicating, again, probably this light and beauty and clarity, which is all we really need to know about God at this point. We know from the Scriptures, if John had seen God the way he really is, it would have killed him outright. Not because God's cruel, but because the sight would be too much for anyone in the condition that we are now. It simply would overwhelm us. But his beauty and his light are communicated to us through that short little description. And it's enough. For now, it's enough. But John continues his painting he tells us about some other thrones that are there in heaven in, in verse 4. Surrounding the thrones were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders, and they were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. And so, of course, white represents righteousness, and crowns represent authority. But again, we aren't given very much detail here. Now, there are a couple of ideas of just who these 24 elders are. Some think they represent both the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And I think as far as that goes, that's probably a pretty good guess. But there is no real definite indication from the text. Now some think that they're actually people, but for a lot of reasons that but really just beyond the scope of this message, they almost certainly are a kind 
of angel, some exalted type of angelic being. But the real purpose for being here is not so that we know what they look like. The real purpose is that they are there to point us to the living God. You see, those 24 thrones surround that one throne where God is sitting. And and they, as mysterious as they are, are there to add that information to us. They all look to him for uh, uh, for who he is. And again, uh, they are turned towards him and they will later on in the text worship him. So this picture uh, continues to evolve. There's these 24 elders, as mysterious as they might be, but they're there. And, and verse 5 adds a few more pieces to the puzzle, both of which are about God himself. So we read this, the beginning of 5. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Now throughout the book of Revelation, those things are always associated with the very presence of God Almighty himself. And the Old Testament makes reference to them, but throughout Revelation, they say to us, God is here. And again in verse 5, it says, In front of the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. And we've talked about this before, but again, that's a symbolic representation of the third person of the Trinity. So the Father is there, and, and the Spirit is in our picture. And we might wonder, where is Jesus in all of this? It was his voice that called John up to heaven, but where is he? here well we go on by now the picture is not only a thing that is building but so is our anticipation john is working us into a kind of a of a pinnacle that we can feel in our bones and he continues at the beginning of verse six we read this also in front of the throne there was what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal. That's another unusual element. There there are a number of different thoughts about just what that is. Uh, uh, Whatever it was appeared to be a sea made out of glass, but but that's not what it was. And there's several Old Testament passages that talk about that kind of thing uh, in the presence of God, but they're just as mysterious as this one is. Uh, We just know that, that it's something unique to God. Now some people think it represents that sea of glass represents the the distance separating the holiness of God from the sinfulness that is in nature. And other people think that it's they concentrating on the transparency that that it means that God can see everything that's going on in the world below him. And some people think it's merely just kind of a picturesque element to adding to the divine majesty in the picture, and the most intriguing idea is that it's a barrier that the redeemed must pass through in the new exodus, which Jesus leads them through. Maybe the real beauty is that it makes us think, and that's why it's given to us. Maybe 
all of those things are right. And I'm inclined to think that probably they are. The sea is like glass, representing this immense distance between us and God's holiness and the sinfulness of our world. He knows all that's going on, and we have to pass through it that we can get there, and Jesus is the one who brings us to him, and it adds to the majesty of the picture. And so here we find in this chapter this thing like a sea of glass, and still... The anticipation builds. Still, the picture unfolds. And now we come to the strangest part of it of all. We come to the four living creatures. The end of verse 6 through uh, verse 8. In the center around the throne were four living creatures. And they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth was like a flying eagle. And each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under its wings. So just, what are they? Well, they're the four living creatures. That's what they are. That's how we have to understand them. They're, they're unlike anything else in our experience. They're similar, uh, to, they're similar to the seraphim in Isaiah and cherubim of Ezekiel, of which we know more, know, know more of those than we do of these creatures. There are similarities, but there are also differences, although John's is much more like uh, the, the uh, cherubim of Ezekiel. There's some things we can say about them. Uh, the eyes all over them represent a vigilance and unlimited intelligence. The wings represent the swiftness of movement. The four different uh, heads indicate different aspects of nature. Wild beasts, domesticated animals, flying creatures, and humans are, are maybe better. The mightiest, the noblest, the swiftest, and the wisest creatures. But what are they? Well... We know as much as there is to know. They are the four living creatures which surround the throne of God. But more important than what they look like is what they do. And here we've almost reached that pinnacle, the climax that John has been leading us to all along. And here we're finally told just who sits on the throne in heaven. Everything has been leading up to this point, and now we're here, and the end of verse 8, we read, day and night. They never stop saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. John lets those four living creatures identify the one on the throne. He is the thrice holy God. And this vision recalls that famous vision of Isaiah. God is eternal. He was and is and is to come. And he is named the Lord God Almighty who is worthy of unending and ceaseless praise. That is who's sitting on the throne of heaven. And that's 
who rules everything. And the crescendo comes in verses 9 through 11, where we read, Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne, and they worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. John has led us by this vision that God gave him to the very heights of heaven. From someone sitting on a throne to the Lord God Almighty, the eternal King, the creator and sustainer, who the highest and greatest of heaven fall down and worship, and who rules the universe as it stands. That's where John has led us. This is the picture that he's painted for us. This is what God wants us to know. Revelation starts with John's vision of Christ, which is really highly symbolic, and it's unlike any of his appearances after the resurrection, but that's where it starts. And then it moves to the seven letters of the seven churches, which is the most comfortable for us in the whole book. And we understand the struggles of those churches, and some of, some of those things we understand better than others, having experiencing them ourselves, such as maybe falling away from our first love. And some are more distant, and they're not part of our experience like persecution but even that is of this world and yet having said that every one of those letters makes a connection with the heavenly realm it's jesus who knows each church and he has a message from the for the pastor uh, for the church that's delivered through the pastor and made real through the spirit and then the uh, uh, book turns our attention to what can only be called the throne room of God, the ultimate reality. You know, the philosophers talk about God as the ground of all being, and indeed everything that exists other than God himself exists because he created it. And the, the book will turn it in a little while to the horrific events of the end times. But before we're thrown into that turmoil of the last days and the seals and the trumpets and the bowls, and judgments, which represent really the entire history of our human story, we're given a glimpse of heaven in which we as believers are heading. Now, there's just one more thing I, I want to point out about this text before we move on, but which I think we're going to find significant. And it's the very last line in the chapter. In the middle of verse 11, we read this. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and have their being. And it's that last line I want you to see. Not only did God create everything, but he sustains it. Everything that exists in our world today, that has ever existed or will exist, exists because God allows it to exist and fact it's more than that he keeps it in existence so how do we put this in a way that might help us understand what's going on here well i think there are two things we can do to help us um, 
First, I, I think we could think of being part of a place where we're watching a competition between children, but the children themselves don't know that we can see them. And the competition isn't an organized one. Mind you, it really is something that has developed as the children are playing or interacting. And a dispute breaks out. Maybe it's over a toy or a game. And, uh, and, and there are those that are clearly in the right, and there are those that are clearly in the wrong. And, um, and we could make it more complex. I mean, we, we could make it more like life by acknowledging that there are, are some things that won't be clear, maybe a little more cloudy, and each side has some legitimate grievances. But we'll just keep it pretty clear and simple in our uh, example, and we're going to understand what's going on here. So as we're watching the events unfold, we could step in, couldn't we, and intervene. We could set things straight right then and there. And sometimes as adults, that's what our responsibility is, and that's what we have to do. But we can't imagine, can't we, not stepping in, at least not right away. I mean, we're not going to let anything get out of hand, but, but we wait and we watch to see what each child is going to do. So let's imagine, which we probably have already been doing, that one of the children in this developing contest is yours. You know, it really doesn't matter whether your child's in the right or the wrong. Of course, you wish he or she is in the right. Whichever side you find your child on, you, you want them to do what's right, don't you? So if she or he is in the right, you want them to stand for the truth and yet be gracious and kind. And you hope that being in the right doesn't give them some kind of license to, uh, to simply act self-righteously or feel better about themselves than they should. If, on the other hand, your child's in the wrong, you, you hope he or she begins to see that, especially if the other kids are being kind and gracious. You hope that their pride doesn't get in the way of their turning from the wrong and doing what's right, and you, you don't want this, them to become belligerent and self-seeking. And so you're, you're watching this, and, and you're knowing whatever that outcome, you will be better able to help your child. If they've acted right, if they've done right, and they've acted with that kindness and grace that you would hope, you, you would encourage them in that kind. And if they became self-righteous, you would help them to try to understand how that falls short and how they could have acted and done better and achieved better things in that situation if they were in the wrong. But they saw that, right, and they understood it and they turned from it. You, you would certainly encourage them in that too. And if they continued down the wrong path, you would address that. All the while you're watching, there's a calmness about you. You see that things are getting intense. Do you know you're going to be able to step in and stop it before things get out of hand or anyone gets hurt? You let things play out because this is life. And it's how things are. And, and you know you won't always be there to help them. So you take advantage of every opportunity you have. And mothers like this, too. And although you're calm and you know you have everything in control, the situation down on the ground, so to speak, is entirely different. For those kids, the conflict is real. And it's intense. And it is emotional. And 
both sides find themselves alternately angry or frightened or unsure, and one side or another may be outnumbered, and both sides feel they have real grievances and slights, like you men feel when you're driving on the, car, on the highway and somebody cuts you off or gives you the bird, or you women, how you feel when someone says something catty about your clothes or about your family or your friends. And in that contest between the children, our vantage point as we watch them is the real one. It's the stage where everything else is happening. It's the place where all the controlling decisions really are made. See, we're the ones who are letting the things play out and deciding how far they go. The children don't know that, but we do. Now, I want you to imagine two more things. First, imagine being able to feed events uh, or thoughts into those children, that child's contest as it unfolds, such as sending another child in there to mediate or, or having one of the children drop a book that all of the guys had read and light that addressed a similar situation. And second, I, I want you to imagine now that some of the children at least really do remember and know, no matter which side of the argument that they're on, that you are watching, even though they cannot see you. Imagine how their actions might change when they think about that. And when we imagine those last two things, it makes our picture more like what is happening in heaven throughout time and especially as we move forward into the book of Revelation. Of course, we're not God. We can't know everything and we don't have perfect knowledge and we can't see what's happening in the hearts of others. But but we have some small picture of what's really going on in chapter 4. It's establishing the real vantage point of our existence. Before all of the seals and all of the trumpets and all of the bowls and all of the ju uh, judgments, we are given a picture of what ultimate reality really is. And knowing that, and knowing that God is watching, and knowing that, uh, as we will discover, he is active in everything we face, it'll change the way we go through things. The second thing I think that might be helpful is if we are to put ourselves in our own historical context. And, and, and let me begin this way. Dick Durbin was the last World War II vet that I knew personally, and now he has gone home to the Lord. And Rose, we all miss him with you very much. So he lived in that war, and he experienced it firsthand. And then other people that are a little older than me, they grew up under the shadow of that war, and, and yet... Everything my generation knew about it, we learned from television. We learned it from TV series like Combat or Hogan's Heroes. 
And, and there are younger people who don't even know that much. But we're not stupid. It, it, even if our personal experience of the last of the great wars is limited or non-existent, if we look, we can see history repeating itself right before our eyes. We see a growing worldwide threat that some in leadership won't even name. We see once again a rise of anti-Semitism on the entire world and now this time Christians are thrown into the mix. We see short-sighted appeasement mentality of Neville Chamberlain and our own government and we have been attacked here in our own nation and the threat of that attacks continue in our day. A blind man on a flying horse ought to be able to see that our world is moving to some significant and catastrophic event. Maybe it is the end times or maybe just something like it. Not one of us knows what situation we might find ourselves in. The future looms ahead of us, and it threatens. It's not whispering poems of peace, but it's shouting words of war. Wishing it were not so or ignoring it won't make it go away. Not one of us knows what we might be called upon to do. Some might be called to fight in other parts of our world where the fight might come right to our doorstep. And the likely truth is, my friends, is both things are going to happen. We don't know what we're going to face. Later in Revelation, in chapter 13, we're told this, if anyone is to go into captivity, into captivity they will go. If anyone is to be killed with a sword, with a sword they will be killed. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. We do not know what's coming our way. But we know God. We know that he is in heaven. We know that he rules the world. We know that everything that exists, even those evil people that would kill us if they could, exists because God allows it. And he has not lost control. And he is still worthy of our praise. And if we have that picture in our heart and mind, if we can see him high and lifted up and on his throne, surrounded by those 24 elders and hear and feel and see the thunder and the rumblings and the lightning and all the glory that there is in chapter 4, then we can face whatever comes our way. I have to tell you, the picture's not yet complete. We still need chapter 5. Chapter 4 shows us the ground of all being. It shows us if God as he has always existed. But we've only heard the voice of Christ in this chapter. Chapter 5 shows us Jesus in heaven. And it's because he is there that we can be there. We don't know the future. We don't. But we know the one who does. And we are going to a place where day and night 
they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And by your will they were created, and they have their being. Glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, I know it's a complex message, a lot of moving parts. But the long and the short of it is, is you want us to know who you are and that you are in control and that nothing happens that you don't allow. There's a bigger picture than what surrounds us. Don't let us get lost in our circumstances. Help us to always look beyond in the small things as well as the big things. And we'll give you the praise and the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.